Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to another week of Chasing Frets, and I'm so excited to be joined by Joe Gore this week. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing great, and I'm really stoked about talking to our friend Adam Levy. Yeah, Adam, man. I was just thinking, uh, you know, he reached out. He had heard the episodes with Miles, I think, specifically, and he's like, wow, this seems like an interesting concept. I, you know, is there a way I can get in on the action? We're like, of course, Adam, of course. And I was thinking back to the first time I met him, and I I uh, I known about him because I was working at the National Guitar Workshop, and he is kind of a, a teacher of legend there. And it was at a it was, and I he says he does remember this that uh, I was uh, we were at South by Southwest. I was hosting an event there in probably two thousand seven or eight, and uh, we were at Guero's on South Congress getting some killer food, and he needed a ride to a, to one of. Uh, a fastball gig because his buddy Miles from fastball was playing somewhere. And so we hopped in the car. I gave him a ride. We hung out a little bit. And and since then, it's mostly been kind of passing elbows at NAM shows, you know. But but you go much further back with Adam. When did you first uh, meet him? Oh, God, it's been well over 20 years now. Um, Adam, Adam, Adam's, a, Adam's a vagabond. You know, he's, he changes where he lives a lot. He's, um, well, he mainly oscillates between between New York City um, and California, mm-hmm. and he was up here in the San Francisco Bay Area for years. Um, you know, at a time when we had this amazing jazz guitar scene, when you know, you know, Charlie Hunter, Will Bernard, um, you know, John Schott, and you know, and Adam were all gigging at the same time. Uh, um, most of those guys are now uh, are now Brooklyn jazzites, <laughs> but um, we also. Um, he and I both worked for another guitar magazine at one point. We didn't overlap, but we had a lot of the same experiences. And uh, another weird one was that, you know, I played for many years with Tracy Chapman and Adam had played with her earlier. And um, uh, he played the iconic blues guitar solo on yeah. one of Tracy's big hits, uh, Give Me One Reason. So, um, uh, you know, Adam's role in that record has been part of my consciousness on, on, you know, tour time and again. And, um, uh, and in recent years, um, I've had the pleasure of co-hosting some workshops with him. And um, I don't know if Adam's going to like this or not, but I always think of him like Yoda, you know, he's just soft-spoken, quiet, a hundred percent kindness, a hundred percent gentle, but man, does he dispense wisdom. Uh, Adam's a deep dude. He speaks softly and teaches with Big string, and, I don't and, know. Yeah, right. and even though you know, and but also, um, you know, besides being a you know fabulous jazz player and a educator with a lot to say, 
Uh, he also co-wrote and played on that first Nora Jones album that was such a massive hit, you know, back around the turn of the century. And, uh, you know, so he goes all the way from like big mainstream radio hits to small club jazz. Uh, he was the head of the guitar department formerly at the Los Angeles College of Music. And I didn't mention this when we were talking to Adam, but um, uh, one fun Adam Levy fact um, is uh, his grandfather was a was a songwriter yeah yeah and you probably know two of his most famous songs one is the christmas perennial it's the most wonderful time of the year and um and even more famously adam's grandpa wrote the gilligan's island theme yeah 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 that is a that is a fun adam adam love effect and most and even fascinating too yeah super fascinating and I would say if people, if you want to check out a lot of his stuff on iTunes and stuff, the album I tend to point people to is Washing Day. And it's not, it's a singer songwriter record and it's just trio with him and Andy Hess and Tony Mason, I believe. And yeah, we didn't even met, I didn't even mention that. Yes, he's a great singer songwriter too. And that record, I remember I, I got that right around the time I met him at South by and I just played it over and over and over and over again. There's a lot of really hip, cool guitar stuff on there, but it's not. In, in your face and out front. So, but today's topic, uh, we're going to talk about dice and game theory and how it relates to practicing. We're going to, we're going to spill the beans about Adam's gambling problem. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Not, no, just a joke, just joking. Yeah. <laughs> he uses dice as part of his practice routine. Yeah. Custom, custom made dice at that. So, uh, and also later this week, we're going to touch more on that solo that Joe was uh, referencing on that from that Tracy Chapman record. So we're going to get right to it. Our first of three episodes this week with Adam Levy. All right, Adam, so great to have you join us this week and, uh, and hang out for a while. So great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jason and Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi, Adam. It's good to hang out with you, old pal. Yeah. Today's topic uh, was one we were kind of emailing back and forth, and it was an interesting way that you use dice in your practice routine. So tell us a little bit about how this kind of got started. Well, it got started really years and years ago. I took a lesson from a guitarist in L.A. named Mike Miller. Do you guys know Mike? Mm-hmm. And South Dakota zone. Yeah, exactly. And... You know, I used to, I grew up in L.A. and I used to go hear him play at the Baked Potato uh, with the Fowler Brothers and with his own thing. And I was just really fascinated by his chordal concept and also his melodic concept. He really seemed to, you know, be using a lot of the same materials that we all use, but have a really different um, spin on it. So I took a lesson with him and he, and he talked about his intervallic concept. And I've thought about that lesson so many times over the years and kind of done a version of it in my mind. And more recently, I've been using dice as a way to um, to have a similar approach. And maybe this won't make sense until I play some stuff on the guitar and, and then it'll make more sense. So I've got these two dice. Uh, I had this pair custom made. Instead of going one to six, they go two to seven. And the reason for that will be uh, become, I think, more clear as, as I walk you through what I do with the dice. Of course, if you don't have custom dice, you could do something like this with flashcards or, you know, find another way to do it. 
Couldn't you just use regular dice and add a one? You could use regular dice and add a one. You totally could do that. Um, you could take a regular pair of dice and get out a Sharpie and modify your dice. Um, yeah. Yeah, of course. In any way that works for you. I just had fun with this. I found a guy on Etsy that uh, would make dice to order. So I thought that would be fun. They're made of wood and resin and they're really beautiful. They came in this little box. So I'm going to start with just rolling one die. And it came up as two. So let's say what you're working on in your practice today is uh, this is just a G major scale in second position. Uh, e form if you're a caged person. Can you guys hear the guitar okay? Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's the scale. Right? So uh, for each note of the scale, we're going to add a second note. Uh, we're going to partner it, and it will be a second away from the first note. Some of those will be major seconds, some of those will be minor seconds. It just has to do with the asymmetry of the scale, but we're going to stay in that particular scale. So instead of just going do, re, mi, we'll have the first note and the note that's a second above it. And so on. And so that could be something that you do as a technical practice. Uh, you turn on your metronome and you do it at, at a fixed uh, tempo, ascending, descending. Um, it could be something that's more about improvising. You make a, a loop with your looper or you find a jam track someplace and you try improvising using seconds as much as you can. If your melodic sensibility leads you to something else along the way, you know, you should trust that. But you put seconds as your primary um, motif. So I don't have a looper here. I'm just playing an acoustic guitar. But if I had something like this going. So like that. So that's just motivic improvisation using seconds. Um, and then, you know, why use dice for this? I guess you, if you're a spreadsheety kind of person, you could just make a list of all the intervals and on Mondays practice this and Tuesdays practice that and, you know, on alternate Thursdays practice something else. But I like having a little bit of randomness. It might turn out that tomorrow I roll a two again and I practice seconds again, uh, but I'll try to find some other way to, to spin it. Um, also, I just like the physicality of dice more more than a spreadsheet that I'm filling in. Um, another way that you could use that roll of two is if you if you're somebody who loves the Mick Goodrick Advancing Guitarist book, you might know he's got a chapter on practicing in different positions. Um, let's say you want to practice all 12 keys of the major scale in one position, a fixed position, not moving around. So you could try to do that all in second position. Um, so here's the G major scale in second position. Here's A flat, and people can't really see my hands, I realize, but um, here's A, here's B flat. And that's all in second position. So that's yeah. For folks who, for people who can't see the video like we can, 
Adam was pretty much staying at second position the whole time, you know, give or take a fret. Yeah. So he sort of had his hands spanning across, spanning between the first fret and the fifth fret and was, you know, going through each, each key with very, very little repositioning of his hand between um, iterations. Yeah. And uh, if you're somebody who's into Wayne Krantz's improvisers OS uh, four fret thing, again, you could use this roll of the die to, to choose the position you're going to be in. Uh, but the way that I mostly use it is for intervallic practice, like I like I said. And besides the melodic thing, there's also you could use it as a chordal thing, which is something that I saw Mike Miller do uh, that I thought was really interesting. So now now I'm not in a fixed position. I'm moving uh, horizontally along the strings, and I'm playing in seconds. And I've run out of neck or run out of fretboard, so I've shifted to another string set. And any of these pairs of seconds, I I think of as a possibility of G major, a possibility of A Dorian, uh, B Phrygian, and so on. All of those seconds could apply to any of the modes. And then when you roll two dice, uh, it just gets a lot more interesting. So now I've rolled seven and seven. So sticking with a, a chordal sound, and if I stay in G major, I've gone one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then from that note up another seven. So now I'm playing G, F sharp, and E. And you could try to give that a conventional name. Uh, maybe it's G major seven with a 13. But I just think of it more as a sound unto itself. It's these two intervals and we can step this through the scale and get maybe some chords that we wouldn't get to otherwise. So those are the sounds. And again, all of those could be, they could suggest G major-y thing, or they could suggest an E minor-y thing or a C Lydian type thing, especially as you get into the upper register with them. Down low, it's hard to hear this as anything other than a G something. Mm -hmm. But if you're up here, that could be a really nice E minor sound or, or some, some kind of B thing or some kind of C thing. And it just gets your hands into some shapes that you might not find otherwise. And then again, of course, there's the melodic thing as well. So that's all in position. And then, so that's what I do. And, and depending on the day and, and my mood, I might use it again in a technical way, just to try and uh, be able to do it at a certain speed. Um, if I want to be more creative, I might improvise like I showed you, you know, create a, a loop or something, or I might even write an etude where I just want to write a 12 bar, or, you know, some kind of short piece of music that is based around that particular sound. I find that to be really helpful. It's, it's a little more sticky in my own brain if I create a piece of music that I can return to rather than just, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of, of working out. Well, you mentioned Mick Goodrick in passing, and, you know, we should probably mention you were one of his students, were you not? 
No, no, I actually didn't get to study with Mick. Oh, I really think you had. I really wanted to. There was a point when I, I had reached out to him and uh, I sent him a tape of some stuff I was working on and kind of went through a couple of notes back and forth. But it, long and short of it is, I no, I never did. I'm, I'm a big fan of his book and um, The Advancing Guitarist, but no, I've never had a one-on-one -on -one lesson with Mick. You know, Mick has a left a long string of you know, well-known students and the, and the book Adam mentioned, uh, the advancing guitarist is, seems to be universally yeah. regarded as one of the finest jazz guitar method books or just guitar in general. Really? I mean, yeah, yeah my favorite, yeah. my favorite page in that book is creative uses of space. And huh. you know, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? And it's just numbers like here's one, two, three, and it's just, just empty, different, various sizes of blank page. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I, I love that there's, you know, humor in that book. Like, I think after that page, there's uh, some sort of commentary, you know, where he says, just because something's funny doesn't mean it's not true. And just because something's true doesn't mean it's not funny. Yeah. Um, I'll say one thing about that book that really blew me. You know, I, I read that book voraciously when I was in my you know, mid late twenties is around the time it came out. And I, I was living in the Bay area. I don't, I don't know if I'd even met Joe yet, but I was living in, um, up in Albany, California. And, and that was the book that I just went to day after day. And I went back to it recently and looked at the copyright date. And I went to, you know, Wikipedia to figure out how old Mick Goodrick is now. And I realized that when that book was published, Mick was maybe 42 or something like that. And it was like, wow. Cause to me, you know, I'm in my mid fifties now to think that somebody in their early forties already had not just such a command of music, but also uh, a real perspective on, you know, what music is for and in our lives and, you know, life and interest. It's a pretty heavy book. And, you know, when I meet somebody now who's in their early forties, I think of them as, a youngin, and it just blew my mind that Mick had already written that at that point. I was going to say, you know, I've done, I've uh, had the privilege of, you know, co-conducting workshops, Adam, and and it, you know, and watching you in the classroom, and uh, I have vast admiration for how you teach. And um, you know, maybe I was, you know, got my mistaken idea that you'd studied with Mick because there is, you know, you have this very um, kind of mellow, wise, you know, Yoda of the guitar um, uh, vibe about you that, um, you know, I never met Goodrick either, but it's, it's, a, it's a similar spirit to what I encounter in his book. Well, I don't know what to say, but that, that's the tone. When I read his book, that's the tone that I read, you know, the voice in my head narrating the book. I, I don't think there's a book on tape version of The Advancing Guitarist, but if there, that would be great. If there were... <laughs> the voice that I would hear in my head would be um, sort of, uh, you know, Northeastern, uh, you know, some, 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 <laughs> somehow like Alan Watts, Fred Rogers, but hanging out at New England Conservatory. <laughs> <laughs> Have either one of you ever had a chance to see Mick play live? No. I did uh, one time. Only tell us. <laughs> What's that? I did one time. Okay. It was in the lobby of the Hilton in Midtown Manhattan mm. in 2004. 
and okay. he was it was an IAJE thing, and he was him and another trumpet player named Greg Hopkins, this band who's a Berkeley professor, uh, had just like a quartet, and they were just playing in the lobby of this hotel. And wow. people, I mean, people were just milling about and I just pulled up a chair and just sat right in front of them. He had his, he had his headless Steinberger, I'm assuming, yeah. you know, finger style and just endless chords, endless chords. And then he would solo away and he sounded like Mick Goodrick that we've all heard on the records, you know? Wow. I, That's cool. I got to see him. He came to the National Guitar Summer Workshop. Mm. Uh, Connecticut one summer and did a workshop. So I got to see him do a workshop and he played a little bit as part of that, but th that's as close as I've come. I've never seen him play a whole concert. Yeah. He's one of the more under-recorded guitar players in history. He is. For somebody who's had such a big impact on like a whole generation of guitar players, there's surprisingly scant uh, on record, you know, it's, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same with Ted Green, obviously. Yep. Yeah, who I did study with. And yeah, he's, you know, he basically, he made the one solo guitar record. And then he, he, many years later, you know, would show up as a guest, maybe, you know, on, on you know, to, up to play on one track for somebody's record or something. He was more open to that. But I don't know why, but after he made his solo guitar record, decided not, not to record again. Mm. So back to the dice idea, could you maybe demonstrate how that could apply maybe to keys even? Like if you roll the dice and you could think, okay, I'm going to be thinking in either sharps or flats. Mm. And and then you start some kind of exploration off of there. Where would that lead you, Adam? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, if you roll... I haven't thought of it quite that way, but if you roll, okay, I've just rolled one of the die, one of, one of the dice, I got six. You could think in six sharps or six flats. Okay, I'll tell you something. I haven't really done it that way, but, but one thing that comes to mind now is as I let this marinate just for a moment or two, uh, I'll mention another book. I, I mentioned Mick Goodrick's book and Wayne Krantz's book. There's another book that I really love called, and I know you, you've had him on as a guest. Uh, Miles Okazaki has this great book, Fundamentals of Guitar, right? And one of the sections in that book is shape theory, where he takes a, a 12, you know, a circle with 12 points around it, sort of like a clock, and each point is a half step and makes melodic shapes out of it. And I'll use that as a as an idea and I'll roll the dice and then I'll talk about how that could be something that you do in different keys. So I rolled a four and a six. So if you're thinking about this in terms of Okazaki's shape theory, uh, instead of thinking of these as diatonic intervals of like a fourth and a sixth within a scale, uh, in the shape theory thing, this these would be half steps. So if you start on G, you go up four half steps to B, so that would be four half steps. And then from B, you'd go up six half steps. One, two, three, four, six. So you have G, B, F. And then you could think of that as a melodic shape, which at the, you know, because our brains always want to put stuff into context, my brain says, oh, great, G7, yep. got it. 
you know, that's what that suggests. But it could also just be a melodic shape, in which case you could take it through different keys. I don't have a metronome handy, but you could get a metronome going or use a, a loop, a drone, something so that you have a, a harmonic backdrop to what you're doing and try to just play out of this in as many keys as possible. I'll use the low E string on my guitar as a drone and I'll just play this sound That's the idea. So if you wanted to get out of just playing diatonically, you could use the dice roll and think about it in terms of shape shape theory. And if you're curious about it, you can find stuff like that in, in that book mm -hmm. or if you follow uh, Miles on, on Instagram. He's done loads of studies where he you know shows you like, uh, you know, a well-known tune that employs, a, you know, a particular shape. Yeah. It was interesting hearing him talk about how he's just a slow study methodically going through day by day by day and, uh, and all the weird examples he stumbles across. Yeah. So I love that. And really just these two dice, like, um, you know, I've mentioned all these books, but um, I'm in the middle of moving which I mentioned to you guys before we started. So what normally I have a library of books behind me, you know, some of my favorite guitar books, but right now they're all in boxes. Um, and without a book, having a pair of diet, like if I was just stuck someplace um, and wanted to generate some ideas without having a, a you know, one of my favorite go-to books handy, I find that these are a good launching point for a practice session, um, either by rolling one or by rolling two. There's always going to be some new shape that I haven't tried to get my fingers into before, or some new angle on a scale that I just haven't thought of. You know, we, we all try to practice the, the common scales and some less common scales, and they can sound really scaly. And I find that with dice, I sort of surprise myself by finding little kind of hidden corners within the scales where they don't feel so do re mi anymore. So to kind of wrap up this lesson or this episode, excuse me, Adam, is there a way, yeah. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. I might be putting you on the spot here. How could you yeah. apply dice rolls to repertoire? Oh, wow. Good question. Yeah. Huh. Jason, you got to take this dice thing and run with it. I'm, You're getting I'm, a bunch of good ideas. I'm telling you, I think, here we go, Adam. Here's, I'm giving you this idea. You need to write a book that comes with a pair of custom dice. Wow. Okay. You're the guy to do this. I think that's actually kind of a, a cool idea. <laughs> um, but, well, Jason, do you mean like you roll a two and you play two coins in the fountain and you roll a seven and you play seven come 11? Or it's like... <laughs> You five guys named Mo. I mean, <laughs> you, you could do it. You could do. I'm thinking you could do it in keys. You could do it in 
uh, you could just come up with a list of tunes and be like, okay, roll one dice. I'm playing tune number six. Okay, roll the second dice. I'm playing it in this key. Yeah, I think you could totally you could totally do that, As, especially. Okay, if you're thinking of repertoire in the broadest sense, um, you know, there's always so many tunes that you could play. But at any given time, it's not a bad idea to limit the tunes that you're working on in your practice. Um, well, you know, if you're somebody who's trying to play, if you're somebody who's trying to be a human jukebox, then that's maybe a different skill set where you're, you're specific, you know, that your goal is how many tunes can I memorize and just, and play. Um, that's great. If you're um, going to, you know, play a hotel gig or a cruise ship gig, or, or just, if you're just somebody who loves the great American songbook or any particular collection of songs or whatever it's 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 great to memorize a lot of songs but um joe when you say explain like to me at any given time i'm glad to have just a, a small number of things that i'm working on because i i'll notice a lot more about them if I play them over and over every day, uh, I've been working on, it's not really repertoire, but it's this Ted Green study about triads. And I play it every day. And every day I start to notice new levels of the music that he wrote, like kind of going, oh, there's like something there that I didn't hear before, or didn't see or didn't notice. And I also can, um, for myself take different angles uh, you know as i practice it like maybe i'm just um trying i have a habit i notice of rolling chords if i'm playing triad if, if a sheet has a bunch of triads on it i have a tendency to break them like that and so um it's good practice for me to go what happens if you just play them that way and Another thing is if I, I'm not looking at the TED sheet right now, but it does start out like that. What is the melody of that? Can I hear that? What is the middle voice of that? And can I really just focus my ear on the middle voice? And can I just really focus my ear on the low voice? That's different than repertoire, but at the moment, that's a sheet that I've been going back to. If you're talking about repertoire, like studying jazz tunes, um, I think you get a lot more out of your study by going back to one tune over and over again. What is the melody really? What is the harmony really? Can you play it in some different keys? Can you play it in some different registers on the guitar? Can you play just the melody and the root note, like a super simple chord melody? Um, there's a lot of stuff that I would do to before I felt like I really knew a tune. And so I'm not trying to just like fan through the real book and and skim. I, I would much rather, you know, like there's players, there's jazz players who make a whole career out of playing the same 10 or 12 songs. You look at records that they've made 
and over the years they they keep going back to the same songs and and I, I think there's something to that it's it's not laziness it's like no I want to go deeper I want to want to find something in this tune that I've never seen before that idea has never been more put into my face musically than one the one time I got to see Jim Hall live was that same trip to New York in 2004 and he was him and Charlie Hayden were doing duet duo at the Blue Note and mm. like the last song he plays like that's my wife's favorite song and it was all the things you are and it was just two guys right. who have probably played that song hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times Thousands, thousands even yeah and just to hear them it sounded like as fresh as anything else they were playing that night it was great yeah i read this wayne shorter interview it might have been in the in the new york times uh i have to find it but he basically just says you know being bored is not an option like that's just if you're if you're bored with the music that you're practicing that's that's on you yeah and and a tune like all the things you are, of course, there's, um, it's just like we were talking about off air, you know, as a journalist, um, there's pat questions that we can ask, you know, people that we're interviewing. And there are pat ways to play through all the things you are. But by using dice, you asked me like how you could roll dice and, and approach repertoire. I can't think off the top of my head of how to do that. I'm sure there's a way that I'll think of as soon as we're done. It'll be in the book. But what's it'll be in the book, yeah. right? Exactly. <laughs> but of course, there's always a way to look at a tune that you haven't thought of. Um, you could make a small loop, just play the first two measures for a while, or just play measures seven and eight for a while. Just playing it in a different key could really open it up. Um, just playing the melody for a long time and pretending that the guitar is not a chord instrument could be something just playing chords for a while and, and ignoring the melody and seeing how much music you can make with the chords, two note chords, three note chords. If you are talking about rolls of the dice, um, okay, I just rolled five and three. So this is on, on the guitar. I'm just gonna play a fifth and a third. You could take this voicing, a fifth and a third and try to run it through all the things you are. Uh, I, I cheated. That's a fifth and a third, fifth and a third, fifth and a third. So that would be a way that you could work on comping with that. You could do a similar thing with melody, of course. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for taking the time to give me a yeah, guitar lesson. It feels like I'm, I've been taking notes this whole time. So we're going to have uh, Adam back the rest of this week, and we'll see everybody on Wednesday.